on ktalk.co.za, on the app, on DSTV channel 885, and across the city on 567 AM. Join the conversation. This is Cape Talk. This is Cape Talk. 26 minutes to 10 o'clock, that time of a Friday morning where we ask and we quiz Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Good morning, Chris. Hope you've been well. Yeah, I've been, I've been well, Lester. I've also been reeling from the possibility that one of my days was 1.59 second, milliseconds shorter in June and 1.5 milliseconds shorter in July. Did you see that story? Uh, I don't I think anyone will have story. noticed, though, because uh, 1.59 <laughs> milliseconds is not a very long time. But it's, it's an interesting talking point, I thought, we should perhaps bring up because it wasn't very well reported. Lots of outlets, in fact, misleadingly mm. reporting that the Earth was speeding up mm. all the time and it's its shortest day ever. That's just not true. Mm. Well, 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 remind me, it was last Friday, I think, where it was reported. Not yo, last Friday was reported was the shortest Earth Day ever. And I know you and I have spoken a lot about the relativity of time and why, when you are older, it seems to be as time is seemingly speeding up. A hour-long road trip when you were a kid seems to be could take forever. Whereas jumping into a car now and driving up the road for an hour doesn't seem that much. What what then are the details of this apparent shortest day ever? Yeah, well, it was in that use of the word "ever" that they got it wrong. It's in the the amount of records we have over about the last five decades. So let's wind back slightly. The National Physical Laboratory announced recently that in the last month. At the end of June and also in July, there were two days that were shorter by 1.5 milliseconds, making those the shortest days since records began. This was unfortunately miscommunicated by some outlets that said the Earth's speeding up and its day, day lengths are now shorter than they've ever been. No, the general trend is that the Earth is slowing down. And the reason the Earth is slowing down is because as the Earth spins, it spins inside the orbit of the Moon. This means that the Moon exerts a bit of a drag on the Earth's surface because of tides and so on. So we're losing some of our rotational energy to the Moon and making the Moon move further away from the Earth, which it does by about two centimetres or about the rate your nails grow every single year. But because of redistribution of mass on the Earth's surface, perhaps because of global warming, melting of ice, redistribution of the molten iron core inside the Earth, it doesn't have to gain any new energy to change its rate of spin. It just has to redistribute some mass, and then it will turn faster or slower. And these accurate measurements made by satellites and radio telescopes watching the Earth's surface recorded that the Earth did apparently speed up on those couple of days in June and in July. And it's been doing it on and off. The last time we actually had to knock off some time to keep up with the slowing down of the Earth was 2016. So this is not a particularly new phenomenon, but it was an interesting phenomenon that the, the Earth has recorded some slightly shorter days. If you went back about a billion years, days were only about 20 hours long because the Earth was turning faster back in those days. Well, let's go to our first caller. Zuki Big Bay, my fellow Stormer. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Yes, how are you? Very good. What's your question? Uh, morning, Dr. Chris. So a couple of weeks ago, you spoke about um, sensory adaptation. So my question is, how come it doesn't um, apply to pain? Um, is it some kind of protective mechanism or would, be, would we be able to not feel pain if we could withstand it long enough? 
Mm. Thanks so much for that. Hi, Zuki. Well, I think there's two things to consider. Number one is what's the point of pain? Pain is to warn us that something's wrong. So if you could continue to get used to pain, it wouldn't serve its purpose, which is to make you stop, pay attention to what's injured and put it right or rest it so it can get better. But it's not true that you don't adapt to pain. When you hit your thumb with a hammer, when it first happens, it's excruciating. But then after a few seconds, it doesn't feel quite so bad. And after a few hours, it's a dull ache. There's inflammation there, there's damage there, but you've got used to the pain to an extent. So the answer to your question really is that we do adapt to pain. It's just that the level of pain we experience is after we've adapted to it and it still hurts and it's still there to warn us that something is wrong. You do definitely get used to pain. And there was an experiment done in the Journal of Neuroscience, it was a, almost 20 years ago now, where they were looking at the placebo effect because this is also a very important part of this story. They did the experiment, it sounds horrific, but these were all volunteers who took part, believe me. They put a needle into the jaw muscles of volunteers and injected at a steady rate some potassium and this activates the nerve cells in that part of the body and it will make you feel pain and they had a, a syringe driving system so they could inject the potassium at a steady rate and patients doing this could then report the level of pain they got and as they did this at a steady rate the level of pain went down they could adjust the system so that it would increase the amount of injection at a steady rate and that compensated for the reduction in pain people were feeling. So people felt that it hurt at a constant rate. So there was adaptation happening there. And where the placebo side of it came into it was they then gave people an injection of salty water and said, this is a really powerful painkiller. It, it, will, it will dull any pain and we're going to give you a big injection of it. They put it in. Everyone said that their pain got better, didn't feel as bad. And in fact, it was just salt water. And when they looked in the brains of these people, as they were doing this, they could see that the circuits which are concerned with your body's own natural pain-killing mechanisms all turned on and ramped up their activity. So by telling people they were getting a painkiller and then the person seeing them receive this salty water injection, although they didn't know it was salty water, it engaged the body's own natural pain-killing pathways right in the centre of the brain that use morphine-like chemicals that your brain makes itself. And that also contributed to a reduction in the perception of pain in these people. Thank you so much for that, Zuki. Gary in Franchuk, how are you doing? I'm okay. What's your question? You know, it's going to be one of those funny ones. But um, I'd like to know why, when you go as an old person like I am in my 60s, how come I go grey, but my pubic hairs don't go grey? <laughs> <laughs> I am reminded, Gary, of a, a, a comedy sketch by a comedy duo called Hale and Pace. I don't know if you ever saw them on the telly, but they used to dress up as two Swedish blokes with big golden locks. And in one of their sketches, one turned to the other and said, in Sweden, where it snows a lot, people often ask us why our hair is blonde and our pubes are dark. And the other one takes over and says, the answer is simple. We dye our pubes. Now, I'm sure you don't dye your pubes, Gary. But the, the bottom line is, and if you'll excuse the pun, that the reason hair goes grey at all is because grey is the natural colour, or white, more accurately, is the natural colour of the keratin protein from which hair is made. 
Hair has a colour in the first place because the ring of stem cells that produce the filament of keratin that we call a hair has embedded in the base of that follicle a population of melanin-producing cells called melanocytes, which, as the hair grows, they endow the hair with a coating, almost like a brush, of melanin. And melanin comes in a range of different flavours and colours. There's pheomelanin, which is a yellowy colour. You have that if you have a lot of blonde hair. There's eumelanin, which is a black colour. And the relative combinations of both give you your ultimate hair colour. As we age, those melanocytes fatigue. It might be oxidative stress. It could be other factors that damage the ability of those melanocytes to produce melanin. And they stop adding melanin to the hair. And they don't do it all at once everywhere they will do it at, at a, in a jittery way. So that's why hair goes salt and pepper to start with. It doesn't go from black to white. It will start to misfire a bit, so you'll get hairs that look grey because the melanin is produced some of the time, but not all the time. But it doesn't turn off all the time, at least initially. And it doesn't do it everywhere. And so by chance, you will end up with some patches of your hair which stay quite dark, some patches which stay a lighter colour. And because you've got lots and lots of hairs on your head, if you have a very black background to your head, so you've got dark hair, and then you have the odd white, they'll stand out a lot from if you've got a less dense network of hair, which, you know, pubic hair is, is tangly and curly, and less dense than head hair. So the odd grey hair there probably stands out less as well. So there might be an element of uh, chance in terms of where it's happening, but also your visual perception of how lightly it is to happen because you're not spotting the odd grey bit here and there in less common hairiness compared to on a very black background or a very dark background of, of the, the hair that you're seeing with the one grey hair in the middle of it. I have plenty of friends who present with uh, darkish hair, and I know they don't dye the top of the head, but I have a few friends who have beards that tend to go ginger. Why is, why is that, Chris? The other thing to consider is that um, the same mechanisms that will make fabrics bleach in the sun the the same thing can happen to the melanin in your beards and so you can, you can get certain hairs will which will become because of things you put on your face soaps and so on smoking will also affect the colors of hairs because it will photolyze the melanin and it will make it go a lighter color so it might be that that is what's going on with your friends also um the relative contribution of the different flavors of melanin in different parts of the body can vary and just by chance you can get more of the yellowy melanin in some patches of the body and that might be also why you've got some friends who who have a more ginger tone to some bits of their body hair okay so you are uh, so you're self-inflicted ginger some of my friends because i see but you're not ginger you you're you're a dark-haired person but your hair but your facial hair has gone ginger i have a quick one here it's from chris and chris says uh you want you to resolve a dispute between him and a friend and Chris says, we both, my friend and I, we both have Garmin GPS devices that also indicate the speed at which we are driving in our vehicles. When the GPS indicates that I'm driving 120 kilometers an hour, but my car's speedometer indicates one, uh, 124 kilometers per hour, based on how these two devices work, which one is more likely to be accurate? That's from Chris. Hello, Chris. The answer is the GPS device is the one to go by. 
Now, the reason that you're seeing this disparity is that the way that a speedometer or odometer in a car works is that it is counting the number of times the wheels go round. Now, you can see immediately why this may be flawed, because it assumes that the tyres are a certain size, because for a tyre to go round once, that corresponds to the circumference of the tyre. As the tyre wears out, and you wear out, say, 10 millimetres of tread, then the distance the tyre's going to turn with one complete revolution when it's worn out compared with when it was new will be considerably less. So therefore your speedometer is going to read wrong on old tyres compared to new tyres. The second point is that when they make these devices, they don't want you getting a speeding ticket because they've made them too accurate and not uh, overread because you might then be tempted to go a bit too quickly by accident and accidentally break the speed limit and then you get a ticket whereas if you make the speedometer so it's cautious and conservative in saying you're going a bit too fast but you're not you're much less likely to get a ticket and motorists will be happier the way gps works is that it knows which position you're in over each snapshot in time and it is averaging over a period of time all the different positions and so it can work out if you're in this position X amount of time ago, now you're in this position, your average speed must be this number. And the GPS device, because of averages, and because what it's doing is, even if there's an error in the signal, the error will be carried forward into each of the snapshots, so it will cancel itself out. The GPS average speed measure for a moving vehicle, you'll find that it, it uh, is inaccurate if your car's stationary, because it might wander a bit. But when the car is moving at constant speed, that measure is probably a lot more accurate than anything your speedometer can do. So I always go by the, the GPS speed in my car. I tend to ignore the speedometer when, when you're worried about making sure you're absolutely doing the right speed. Question here, and I, I have to include the curse word, but it says, Chris, why are orcas bastards? There have been reports of them ripping out sharks' livers off Muscle Bay that we saw in our media recently, uh, Chris. They've been torpedoing seals and capsizing fishing boats off the Andalusian coast. That's, that's Spain, Portugal. Um, can animals have the natural instinct to be mischievous or even evil? Uh, we actually reported on this story. We interviewed the team behind the reports and that they were published recently of orcas attacking great white sharks in South Africa. If you go to the latest, I think three weeks ago, Naked Scientist podcast, so nakedscientist.com slash podcast, you can find that story there and listen to the researcher. She told us how she's gone through hell and high water, literally and metaphorically, to get enough data on this in order to be able to publish this. So have a listen to that. But the answer is this is, this is behaviour that these animals have learned. And as animals get more complicated and they get more intelligent because they have more brain power they don't just learn or do things by instinct there's obviously a healthy helping of instinct but they also learn socially many animals including birds even bees will watch each other and learn from each other there was a lovely paper a few years ago where researchers at uh, queen mary university of london were able to get bumblebees playing football and they had a bee with a ball and the bee dribbled the ball into a goal, in inverted commas, for a treat. Other bees watching were then able to pick up the trick to get a reward themselves. Fish also learn from each other. You can socially educate sticklebacks, you know, tiny little river fish, by showing them something, 
that's happening to another fish and they will then adopt the same behaviour. Orcas are big animals, they've got big brains, they're very intelligent and if this is a way to find food and ripping the guts out of a great white shark yields an enormous liver. The, they're going after the liver in these animals which is very high in calories. Uh, I mean it won't sustain an orca for very long but it's a dirt, certainly a nice treat. So that, that made an easy target for those animals and by working together collaboratively they're able to take down something which would be potentially a big threat to them on its own. So yeah, these animals can learn to do this. They're doing this in a goal-oriented way. They're doing it because they are able to get a meal out of it. But there is also evidence that these animals can collaborate with humans. And someone told me a story when Western Australia had a very big my, um, whaling industry back in the day. There were orcas that would help the uh, whalers to catch certain whales by driving the whales in a certain direction and the orcas would be get the benefits of the spoils as well so they would even help humans hunt not their own species but their cousins in the sea so the these animals are intelligent when it suits them to and they use their intelligence to benefit themselves and humans influence that behavior of of animals but by what we do there's the famous eric Cantona uh quote immortalized and not beyond that judo kick in 1996 where he said when seagulls follow the trawl it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea i'm just talking football because uh the premier league starts tonight so i'm very excited <laughs> chris but 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 i digress uh hi lester if woodpeckers repeatedly knock against a hard surface why don't they get brain damage that's from isona <laughs> well, this is also a story we were literally just published on The Naked Scientist, actually, and it was done a guy called Sam von Van Wassenberg, who's at the University of Antwerp. He has just published a paper in the journal Current Biology where they have looked at precisely this question. So if you go to the Naked Scientist podcast, you will find the interview this week. I just put it out on Tuesday with Sam. Now, back in the day, there was a claim that woodpeckers didn't get brain damage, headaches and concussion by repeatedly whamming their heads against hard things because they had shock absorbers built into the bases of their beaks and this would cushion the blow so that they didn't transmit the force onto their brain. And the team who did that, they actually took photography of the birds and made various measurements and they got them to tap into trees by banging out words on an old typewriter. And the clack, clack, clack of the keys from the typewriter made the woodpeckers hammer into a tree, which I thought was quite an interesting way to do science. But the theory was so appealing, woodpeckers have spongy tissue and shock absorbers in their head, no one bothered to test it for decades. And so that's mm. what Sam van Wassenberg did. And they went to local zoos in Europe where they had woodpeckers. They took a camera capable of capturing 5,000 pictures every second with them. They set up their cameras and waited for the woodpeckers to hammer into trees. And as they did so, they captured the footage. They were then able to look at it frame by frame and look at the same spots in the same places on the birds' heads as the impacts occurred. If mm. the brain were being shock absorbed, there was spongy tissue that meant that some parts of the brain case were soaking up energy, then as the impact occurred, you would expect the relative positions of different parts of the bird's head to change relative to each other. The, the, the skull would effectively telescope in on itself a tiny amount as the energy was absorbed. They did not see this. What they see is that the points remain in identical positions relative to each other, showing that the head moves as a continuous unit 
even when it's smashing into things. So this means the woodpecker does not have any kind of shock absorbing to cushion the blow. It is transmitting all the force to its nervous system. Therefore, its nervous system is resilient to the kinds of forces that it's uh, receiving. Mm. Their argument is woodpeckers are small animals with relatively small brains. Therefore, the force is not sufficiently high to cause major damage. Mm. Nevertheless, when they've looked inside the brain tissue, they have found evidence of an upregulation of various chemicals that we make in our brains. You mentioned the Premier League, football and heading balls Mm. also does the same thing. We produce chemicals in the brain that they are produced in response to injury. And so there is evidence that woodpeckers might be causing some damage to their brain, but it's not sufficient in the short term to cause Mm. massive damage. But if they lived as long as a human did, perhaps it would be. Chris, we're planning a future show in the coming days or week on on pigeons, and particularly pigeons around uh, Cape Town, and we're doing a lot of research and reading. And I've come across a fair bit of reading that we don't, actually know how a pigeon's internal gps works like if you were to put me in the boot of a car drive a hundred kilometers in whatever direction um there's a slim chance that i'd be able to find my way back home but you put a pigeon in a boot of a car you drive 400 kilometers it's more than likely that that pigeon will find its way back what i'm reading is that some scientists ornithologists don't quite know but do you have an idea how pigeons manage by the internal gps systems to track their way home because i'm reading some fascinating stuff on the role of pigeons during world war ii um, and they were used by MI5 and fascinating stories of how they actually helped the Allied war effort. There's absolutely no doubt that these birds use the Earth's magnetic field in order to navigate. And pigeons aren't alone in doing this. There are lots of birds that are sensitive to the Earth's magnetic field. There are also other animals. Fish are sensitive to the Earth's magnetic field. Bats are sensitive to the Earth's magnetic field. And the evidence for this is if you magnetise their environment, then the birds will often fly in the wrong direction. And they also probably use the position of the sun at sunrise and sunset and their body clock to know where they're flying relative to the Earth's magnetic field. So if you know the sunrise is in the east and you've got a magnetic sort of target at the same time, your body clock is then tethered to what the magnetic field is doing. So as the clock ticks, Mm. you know the sun's going to go across the sky. You can use that as a reference point. You can also use the the inclination of the magnetic field. And in about the Mm. last six months or so, researchers have been reporting on looking at how birds probably interact with not just the physical presence of a magnetic field, but how the magnetic field bends around the Earth's surface, the so-called inclination, because they've done studies showing that probably it's the integration of birds have a sense of direction innately anyway. They also have uh, a good visual system, so they can use that to see landmarks. They can remember other things about their environments, smells, sounds, and so on, and they bring that into play. But they probably possibly by using the way their eyes work, can see Mm. the magnetic field of the Earth. Now, they're not seeing field lines. What they're probably doing is becoming more sensitive to certain colours when they're lined up with the magnetic field compared with when they're not lined up with it, and that gives them a sort of visual cue as to what way the magnetic field is pointing, and Mm. that perhaps steers them on course as well. But but to be Mm. perfectly honest, researchers don't know for sure. 
Mm, I'm reading a lot about pigeons because it's coming up in the next few days, a week or so, up to 90 miles an hour, which is about 150 kilometers. Also, didn't know that, and you partly confirm what I've been reading and listening to, is that pigeons rarely fly at night. So that bit around using the sun and its position in the sky to orientate itself, that, that now ringing true but chris that's all we have time for this week thank you so much go to nakedscientist.com to listen to this and other podcasts that dr chris and his team have lined up also go read up you'll be back with us next week chris enjoy your weekend i don't know which team you support but enjoy the first weekend (laughs) of uh, of the epl glory glory man united i say there you go have a good weekend everybody thanks for listening see you next time